0: This is the official SaaS to podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and the one and only godfather of SaaS, Mr. Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. However, enough about us and to the show today and I'm thrilled to welcome Mike Dauber to the hot seat today. Now, Mike is a general partner at Amplify Partners, the fund that backs technical founders building technical products for technical buyers. Their portfolio consists of the likes of Datadog, Fastly and Engageo, just to name a few of the incredible companies. As for Mike, prior to joining Amplify, he spent more than six years at Battery Ventures, where he led early-stage enterprise investments on the West Coast. While at Battery, he was on the boards of Cask, Duetto, Interana, and Platfora, acquired by Workday. Mike also led Battery's investment in Vera, which is also an amplified portfolio. He also previously invested in Splunk and Relate IQ, of which we had Steve Lachlan previously on the show. As a result of this success, Mike was named to Forbes Midas Brinklist in 2014. I'd also want to say a massive thank you to Shivon Zillis at Bloomberg Beta for the intro today to Mike, without which this episode would not have happened. But before we head into the show today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zen desk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers, and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. But enough of my dulcet British tone, so I'm now thrilled to welcome Mike Dorber, general partner at amplify partners good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Mike, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. A big hand to Siobhan at Bloomberg for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Mike.
1: Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Harry.
0: I'd love to kick off this day with a little bit about you and how you came to be a GP at Amplify today. Certainly.
1: My career early on, I was engineer, product manager, sales, and I went to go work for Battery Ventures in 2008. And during my time there, I started to work very closely with Sunil Dhaliwal. And Sunil left Battery in 2012 to start Amplify. And we were talking for a couple of years. And the more I watched what I was doing day in and day out at Battery, and Battery, just for background, is a stage and sector agnostic uh, venture capital firm. you typically do you know, these billion-dollar funds. Loved the people there, loved what I was doing, but really saw the opportunity to focus on the frequent first-time entrepreneur going after something very new. And I was watching what, what Neil was doing at Amplify and felt like he had just built the perfect platform to go off and do exactly what I was trying to do every day. And so almost a exactly Exactly three years ago, summer of, of 2014, I left the month before our baby girl was born and joined Steel and Amplify. We wrapped up our first fund and then in 2015, early, we raised our second fund. So right now, we're investing out of a $125 million fund. We're seeding Series A only. Fantastic. And you, you mentioned the entrepreneur profile there. And that's something that I'd
0: really like to start with, as it's one of your core theses in terms of your preference towards what you call practitioner founders. So I'd love to dig in and really find out how you describe practitioner founders. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's a great question. In an early stage company to us, so much comes down to the founder's ability to really connect with potential customers and deeply understand the pain those customers are having and how they need to be solved. We, we think about this notion of these practitioners, people who lived and breathed the problem, and then they were so fed up with the problem that they turned around and solved it and created a company around it. You know, great examples of this would be Archer Bergman at Fastly Olivier Pamel at Datadog are probably two of our bigger, well-known companies that are far, On the path, but we have probably another half dozen companies that fit this exact model, where you have CEO, CTO who who live the problem deeply and built a product around it. These companies find product market fit faster than any other companies that we see. And as the company scales, they have a deep understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. And and again, I think that is so important when you're doing a company. Your ability that touches everything from your ability to sell the product to your ability to recruit people to the cause. And you can really, really, really get enthusiastic about why people. join you.
0: I've got two little things to unpack there. Talking about kind of deeply, deeply living a problem and then solving it, a lot of uh, VCs in the past have spoken about the naivety and the ability that that naivety brings in terms of the founder and then building a product. Uh, what's your thoughts then on being so in the weeds that you're so aware of all the products
1: that you don't have that naivety? Is that ever a concern? It certainly can be. I mean, the trick here is you have to pick the right founder going after the right problem. But it's often hard to get that deep product understanding and empathy with the problem that you're trying to go off and solve if you don't understand it at a visceral firsthand level. In the case of Archer at Fastly, Archer was so fed up of getting these $5 million a year bills from uh, Akamai's uh, content delivery network that he, he solved the problem for himself at Wikia, where he was a CTO. And a couple of his friends that he told the story to said, you know what, I'd love to host my content on Wikia as well. And Wikia wasn't a CDN. So at some point, Archer realized after the fifth or sixth person came up to him and said, hey, could, could we use what you've built at Wikia. He realized there was actually a company there. I'm really interested, though, because you said there about
0: the five or six customers that came up to him and it comes to the second point that I wanted to unpack, which was product market fit. Often in the search for product market fit though, it's the case of hiring salespeople and you've said before that hiring salespeople is like being thirsty. So walk me through this one, Mike. What's the deeper meaning
1: here? <laughs> yeah, so you know, the expression, if you, if you realize you're thirsty, you're probably already dehydrated, it's too late. I think one of the things we see frequently, and remember, we work a lot with first-time founders. Many of them are straight out of, of an engineering group, so they, they often don't have the experience having worked with a salesperson. And so understanding the cadence of when to hire those first salespeople can be very, very hard to do, especially when you look at the price tag of a salesperson relative to an engineer. For all the talk of how expensive engineers are, and engineers are very expensive, salespeople can frequently be even more expensive. And the reaction to a team of 6, seven, eight, 12 people who are very tight-knit in building a product that they're going to bring on some salesperson, they're going to pay that person two hundred and fifty dollars to $400,000 a year. It's just a shock to the system. And so frequently, they'll delay hiring the sales individual as long as they can because they're they're trying to save the money. And every time an entrepreneur has actually told me, all right, I'm, I'm ready to hire a sales team, it's been at least a quarter too late. And so one of the conversations that we try to have pretty early with our founders is understanding what are the signals that we're looking for in that particular company that tell us that we should go out and find a someone to either run sales or a sales rep that we want to bring on board. Going back to what I was saying before, every company is going to be different, but understanding what you're looking for and, and what those signals for you ought to be, it depends a lot on the founders too. Some founders can take the company farther without needing help with uh, with a sales leader and some can't. And you, you can make either company successful, but uh, you got to be honest with yourself.
0: How do you think founders can discover the optimal rate of sales hiring, conscious also that they maybe don't want to massively ramp up burn too quickly, but also with their Knowledge. They don't want to be dehydrated, as you said.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of great stuff written about how and when to hire and expand sales. My personal favorite is an, as a HBR article written a few years ago by a good friend of mine, Mark Leslie, called the sales learning curve. Uh, and anybody who's who's interested in in the space really ought to ought to just check that out. It's not a long read. I think the problem that we see the biggest is actually the first couple of hires. There's just this reticence of early stage companies to hire anybody in sales because it's I'm a smart guy, I'm the founder, I've I've built this, I've built this company so far. I, I don't need to pay someone else who doesn't know the customers the way I know the customers to go in and sell the product. And I think what a lot of people, what a lot of people miss is separating customers from money is very, very, very hard to do. It takes a special skill set to ask for an order and get someone to write you a check for two or three hundred thousand dollars for a product that no one's ever used before or no one's ever paid for before. And we see a lot of value in that first sales hire. And then once you have that first sales hire, higher end and the company is starting to scale, then it's much easier to figure out what's the right pace because that can be driven by what the demand curve looks like for your product. You you said before to me that you need to trust
0: your instinct. Do you agree then with the higher fast, fire fast thesis? In sales,
1: absolutely. You know, you always have to be careful that you're not going out and creating a culture in your company that gets you to the point where people are always looking over their shoulder. So, you know, the extremes, the extremes are always bad, but you have to find a happy medium. And one of the things I spent a lot of time trying to give in Our early founders of is that, obviously, if you're in a seed round, cash is king and you're worried about running out of money, but typically more often worried about hitting the market timing of the product that we're building and its ability to hit the market and not miss the window. And time is what I think kills more companies as opposed to dollars. Now, sometimes in the desire to go hit a market window, they overspend, but it's that timing that, that really kills so many companies. And so, in that context, if you think you have someone who could help you today, I would rather go hire that person. And then if you see that they're not working out, you pull the rip cord. It doesn't necessarily mean that that person's not any good. I'm trying to hire a VP of sales at one of my other companies. And this is an individual, a company that I used to work with two years ago had, had let go. And he was just a bad fit for that company at that time. But he's a very, very, very talented sales individual. So people a lot of times look at letting someone go as a uh, as a unidirectional situation, right? And oftentimes it can be beneficial for both parties. You said there about time often being a killer. It me- immediately makes me think to Jeff Clavier
0: at SoftTech, who always told me, you know, I think we should allow for 24 to 36 months runway now at Seed. I'm intrigued. How much runway do you think is sufficient with the knowledge that really time can be the ultimate killer? Is 18 months really enough?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question it's something we talk about a lot here. Well, we're normally leading a seed round. We're trying to give the team 18-ish months, plus or minus of capital. Sometimes we'll go up to 24. I think 36 is just too dilutive to the teams. I, I understand why sometimes you need to go that far, but you can always add more capital. You know, The capital that you would put in, you can theoretically add in 18, 20 months down the road if the seed extension is needed. And I think anybody who does a lot of seed funding these days is very, very, very familiar with the seed extension round. But i, I really really think 18 months is the optimal time to, whenever you're raising money, we always think of an 18 month increments because we think about it in terms of 12 months to hit your goals, a three month, a three month buffer, if you slip and three months to, to execute a financing and get money in the bank. 18 months has been, has been something we typically shoot for. I think the other thing that's important to note in all of this is if you're doing seed investing, any kind of early stage investing, and remember we're we're focused on enterprise technical focused B2B type businesses. Uh, We're not doing anything consumer. I should have probably said that at the outset. If you think you kind of the one line pithy way we think about Amplify, we're investing in you know, technical founders, building technical products for technical buyers. These people are going after markets that haven't happened yet. And so you can't be late to market and you can't do the Toyota just in time either, right? You, you got to be early. And the question is, how early are you? But if you're three years too early to market, you're not going to survive. You know, the market has to have at least started to materialize during the course of the first 24 months of funding. Otherwise, the business, you should just go off and do something else. The business isn't going to work.
0: And determining whether you're doing the right or the wrong thing often requires an advisor. You've said before to me that every founder needs a Hobbesian advisor. Uh, So talk to me, what is a Hobbesian advisor? I'm actually unaware of what one is. And what are the benefits?
1: I'm I'm borrowing from one of my favorite philosophers, Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes talks about this notion of an enlightened monarch as the the ideal form of, of government. As I think we're seeing in the United States right now, it reminds me of a great Simpsons quote where Kent Brockman says, this just goes to tell you what I've been saying all along, democracy just doesn't work. Obviously, I'm a big fan of democracy, but sometimes the people that you don't want to get into power get into power. And so Hobbes made the argument that what you really want is you want these enlightened monarchs who really get everything that they could possibly want and then are left making the right decisions because they have no other vested interest other than just seeing the right things happening. And of course, the problem is the transfer of power and how do you find this enlightened monarch Proved to be impossible from a government perspective. But when you're starting a company, actually, these types of people are, are quite helpful in terms of getting these. I mentioned one of them before, Mark Leslie, getting a senior person who has been there and done that and been very, very, very successful in their career. And their goal is no longer to optimize to make money. Their goal is no longer about the ego of I need to be part of a successful uh, enterprise. Their goal is to help people that they like. And one of the things I, I perpetually press my teams on is let's find people who just want to see you be successful. To me, those are the Hobbesian advisors. It's someone it's someone who deeply believes in, I want to see Harry be successful, and I don't really care what's in it for me from a monetary perspective. I'm not trying to jump in my career. I'm not trying to do anything other than at, at every turn, I want to make sure Harry's making the right decisions. And finding those people in your career is important. Finding those people in a startup is is absolutely critical in my mind.
0: Can I ask, other than uh, starting a VC podcast, what, what ways are there that you would say have been most successful in terms of commonalities
1: with regards to finding these and advisors? I think you look for a successful CEO or a successful executive in a company that has echoes of the company that you're trying to start. If you already had a mentor at a company that you spun out of to start your company, then those individuals obviously are are high up on the list. You now, I'll reference Fastly again. Gil Panchilla was this, is that was the CEO, I don't know if you know if he still is the CEO of Wikia. You know, he was he was Arthur's boss. He was the person that encouraged Arter to leave and start Fastly. And so Gil was a great mentor early on to Arthur. You know, someone like Mark Leslie who's a particularly strong person in my mind in this regard was a CEO of a very, very successful company, Veritas, was on the boards of companies like you know VMware and NetApp and Brocade and has been on the boards of countless startups. I've been on two boards with him. I've lost track of how many boards he's been on. And he's also a lecturer at Stanford's GSB for the last 16 or 17 years. And so just his pattern match is fantastic. But you know, Mark's in his early 70s. He's not looking to make more money. He's not looking to make a name for himself. He wants to help those individuals. And so I think if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking for someone like this, you go and look for people who've had experience in the in the domains you're interested in, who had a past success that looks similar. Or you look for people who have experience doing the thing that you don't think you know very well. If you're a deeply technical entrepreneur and you're looking to build bottoms up, go to market, similar to a GitHub or an Alassian, or new relic, then the look at the executives at those companies. Maybe someone is retired who you think you can get an intro to to see if that person gels with you from a personality perspective and if they'd be willing to help you. But the thing that's really, really important is there's nothing that you can give those individuals from a compensation perspective that's going to motivate them? If giving that person, and you you should pay them because it's the right thing to do, but if someone getting equity in your company is the difference between them being interested in you or not, that's the wrong sign. And the person that that best epitomizes this, Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell to me is the ultimate Hobbesian advisor. You know, he passed away unfortunately a couple of years ago. He was an advisor to uh, to Steve Laughlin, the Related IQ team, which is a team I was fortunate to work with. But you know, he worked the number of teams in the Bay Area for years and helped companies like Google and Apple. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, he didn't take anything. Everybody who, who talked about Bill spoke about him in terms of admiration that I, I, I can't think of anybody else that even comes to mind that's at that level. And in fact, his nickname was Coach. Finding people like that, I think, is so important. And a lot of times you'll get into this discussion of, do I want, you know, which, which are better? And I obviously having a biased opinion. you know, Which are better, operator VCs or career VCs? And it's always written from the perspective of of entrepreneurs. To me, if I'm an entrepreneur, I don't don't know why I should have to pick just one, right? In the same way that you build a portfolio to mitigate risk for your retirement, I think so too should you build a portfolio of people who can help you in building your company. And those are people both on your executive team as well as people who can advise you. Some of those people are in the form of investors and some of those people aren't. Yeah, I always think the best founders build a sports team. Um, Absolutely. But I want to move into a
0: quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Mike, 60 seconds.
1: Enterprise investing, spreadsheet investing or a harsh summary? Absolutely not. Spreadsheet investing will not solve your problem in the enterprise space. Certainly, you have to understand the economics of the business that you're going into. But what's vastly more important is having deep, deep understanding of the markets that you're going after and deep understanding of the networks of people that move those markets, both from a go-to market perspective. But for us at the the times we're investing, the technologists that are really going to bend those markets who see what other people aren't seeing. When you go through the enterprise space and you see the companies have been very successful, you know, entrepreneurs who just who see where the puck is headed years before anybody else sees them. That's what creates the great companies and then their ability to to will it to success. None of that really comes out in a spreadsheet. Years later, you can see it in a spreadsheet, but it it won't show up in a seed or series A, probably not even series B. Why does Amplify not track deal attribution? I think this is incredibly important. I think you're seeing it more and more. We're a team-based investor. We have five investment professionals. And amplify. And my experience, having worked with VCs closely for and for them for ten years, is that when you have deal attribution, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, you know, I know what my IRR is. I know what your IRR is. And if I have a VP of Sales candidate that can help you out, but I might need that VP of Sales candidate six months from now, my incentives are not aligned to help you. When I joined Amplify as the second GP, Neil and I spent a lot of time talking about this, and we thought it was incredibly important that everyone was was equally incented to help out. So there's no notion of this is Mike's deal, this is Sunil's deal, this is Leisha's deal, this is Lenny's deal, this is David's deal. We want the best possible person helping the team at the moment in time where, they, where they can, they're best suited to help. And it's not always the same person at the same time. You know, most VCs will have kind of this monolithic approach where, you know, this individual who sourced the deal is the person who's on the deal team. And unless something, you know, strange happens like what we're seeing at Uber, you know, that, that board member stays constant in perpetuity for that company. That's not necessarily the best thing for the company.
0: Uh, Cybersecurity, uh, or
1: cyber investing more specifically, if you're not a domain expert, you shouldn't do it. Agree? Absolutely agree. C- cyber is getting increasingly harder to invest in just because of the, the dynamics in the space and how crowded it is. But the esoteric nature of some of the technologies and how difficult some of the problems are getting to solve, it's, it's the only technical problem you have to solve where there's a live human on the other side who's resisting you. If you think of you know the joke I always think of, you think about the show Silicon Valley, right? There's no person on the other end who's trying to stop and fight Richard's middle-out algorithm. All the problems that Pied Piper has are largely their own doing. But in cyber, there's actually a bad actor on the other side who's trying to fight you. And if you don't really understand what those people are capable of, it's very, very, very hard to invest in this space.
0: Uh, and then let's finish with, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning?
1: Oh gosh, that's a great question. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is understanding how much people drive this business. In early stage investing especially, it's all about the, the people you get to know. And so perpetually optimize for the best possible network of people in a space is what I spend almost all of my time thinking about. And, and the deals follow with that. One simple question that I've learned to always ask, probably the, the thing I wish I'd figured out the soonest, if I could boil it down to one simple statement, which is anytime I meet someone that I'm impressed by, I ask them the question, who else do you know that you think I should meet? And I am flabbergasted by how many phenomenal people I've met just by asking the most simple question. Now, the, the key, of course, is asking that question to the right people. Mike, how do you um,
0: how- do you think we find people for the show? I asked Siobhan, who, I, who should I have on? No. She says, Mike is the man.
1: That's right. Well, I'm deeply, deeply uh, grateful that Siobhan uh, hooked us up. But it's every single day when I meet with people and they ask me if there's anything that they can do for me. I said, yeah, tell me one person you think I should meet. And they ask me in what context and context. And I shrug my shoulders and say, whatever person you think I ought to meet, if I think highly of you, I want to know who you think I should meet. I don't want to narrow that in by saying, who do you think is a great investor that I should meet? Or who do you think is a great an entrepreneur who's about to start a company. Some of the companies we're most excited by were entrepreneurs that we knew for three, four, five years before they ever decided to start a company. And some of my closest friends are people I met through the answers to these questions who've never started a company. So you just, you just never know where it'll take you. But I found that question alone is the most valuable question I can ask. I wish I'd figured that out sooner.
0: And you said about Siobhan hooking us up. I'm excited to finish today with one of my favorite topics being fundraising. And you said before that founders need to set the hook. So what do you mean by this,
1: setting the hook? So to, to me, this is something that I learned years ago when I was in sales. You can't always take someone from zero to 100 in the first meeting. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when I see the decks they put together, their goal is by the end of the meeting to have me completely sold on investing in their company. And that rarely, rarely, rarely happens. Typically, what happens is you'll go through the first meeting and you use the first meeting as a triage to figure out what second, third, and fourth meetings you want to take. So I think the thing that's really important to think about when you're an entrepreneur is to understand that that first meeting is really really a search meeting for you. You're trying to figure out which VCs do I want to spend more time with and which VCs do I want to spend less time with. And the VCs I want to spend more time with, I want to set the hook. And the VCs I want to spend less time with, I want to get to know as quickly as possible because I want to I want to focus my time on the people who are likely to fund me. And so when when I review the, the, the Series A or Series B decks of the companies or Series whatever decks of the companies that we've invested in, they're going out to fundraise. I'm perpetually amazed by how much content the CEOs are trying to pack into the decks. I'm always having the conversation of look, this is great content. You should absolutely talk about this. But let's not let's not put that in the first in the first presentation that you're making to the to the potential investor. Let's make sure they're really interested. And so I think in, in that regard, if you can't set the hook in the first meeting, you know, go on to the second meeting and find the next investor that you can set the hook with. If the hook isn't set in the first meeting, if you have to go back to them over and over and over again to try to convince them, at, at least with investors in the Bay Area, the VCs I, I've gotten to know over the years, it's not going to happen. Most VCs I know have a me for sure have a very strong perspective on whether or not this is a deal they would do within the first 45 to 60 minutes of meeting an entrepreneur.
0: I'm, I'm intrigued to ask, what's the best pitch meeting you've sat in on and why? Uh,
1: actually, there probably was, not he was a guest on your show. Steve Laughlin pitched Relate IQ to me the Friday night before my birthday in 2012. And I think it was because I had both been a salesperson, been a sales manager, and also been, I was using Salesforce at the time. And when he showed me Relate IQ, it was really a revelation. And it was both the concept combination of Steve is a is a really impressive entrepreneur and now uh, a fellow venture capitalist here at Excel. But it wasn't just that. It was his ability to articulate what he and Adam were doing at Relate was incredibly compelling. And just having lived the problem that he was trying to solve, it really stood out to me. I'm sure if I spent five more minutes, I could rattle off another two dozen companies that, that I just jumped up and said, we have to be in this. But that that's probably the one when I kind of think back over 10 years that really stands out to me.
0: That is fantastic. I, I'm thrilled that it was one we've had on the show too. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I'm trying to boost past traffic and do this page rank here
0: (laughs) and we'll do some linkage back to that episode but Mike as we said before uh, we've been trying to do this show for so long and I'm so pleased we did it today Uh, it's been
1: such a pleasure to have you on oh my pleasure thanks so much for having me Harry
0: and I have to say, such a pleasure to have Mike on the show there, a truly special player in the ecosystem. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dauber, D-A-U-B-E-R. Likewise, we'd love to see you on Snapchat. You can follow me on Snapchat at H debbings with two Bs to see all things behind the scenes, both at Sasta and the 20 Minute VC. We'd love to see you there. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay unique Weekly Helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers, and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. As always, we so appreciate all your support and look forward to bringing you next week's episode.